Welcome to Scrubcast, where we take a closer look at the research happening at Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the surgeon scientists themselves. I'm your host, Rachel Baker. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lizzie George. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Rachel. And I guess by podcast, I mean Scrubcast, which I think is an awesome name. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. George is one of our newest faculty members in the Division of Vascular Surgery, although she's been at Stanford for over a decade. Uh, You did your undergraduate with us where you were a women's soccer star and you stayed with us through med school. You just graduated from the Vascular Surgery Residency Program in May. What is it about Stanford that just we keep you here? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're very generous regarding my soccer career. Thank you. It made me blush. Um, But I will say that Stanford offered without question the best combination of collegiate athletics and academics as an undergrad. For medical school, it was just the opportunity to continue to learn from really world experts in their field. And for residency, it was the opportunity to train with surgeons who have paved the way in the relatively new field of vascular surgery and really continue to foster a culture of innovation uh, within the division. And then as far as staying on as faculty, the clinical mentorship paired with the the research opportunities here at Stanford are paralleled for kind of early career health services, vascular <laughs> surgeon scientists like me. Awesome. Is it is it weird going from trainee to faculty in the same place? I do feel weird as a staff member. When you graduate, you know, I, I usually call all of my faculty Dr. George, but I call my residents Lizzie. And so it's been very, I would say, disruptive to my life, particularly. That's a, that's a really, that's a good question. Yeah, you're not definitely not the only person who's asked me that and I'm kind of asked about that transition. And while it's definitely not without its challenges as I work to kind of carve out a, a practice of my own separate from the incredible attendings who trained me, there is that kind of comfort feeling of home akin to sort of the, the Danish or Norwegian concept of fuga, which is like kind of mm-hmm. that feeling of wellness or coziness, kind of contentment, which is trite as it sounds really does allow me to kind of be the best version of myself, both personally and professionally. So the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages. And as far as naming conventions go, I respond to both. And friends, please call me Lizzie. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so you, you did mention that you are a health services researcher. You have your master's in health policy. And when you were uh, doing your PD years, you did a fellowship with the VA Palo Alto C2I2 program. What got you interested in health services research? Uh, great question. And uh, to answer that, I think I'll, I'll actually start with some numbers. Ooh. The U.S. healthcare spending grew about two and a half, I want to say three percent in 2021, reaching well over four trillion dollars um, and accounts for over 18 percent of our GDP. And despite this ongoing sort of growth in spending, um, providing high quality and affordable care is becoming increasingly ever more challenging. And so health services research is kind of a multidisciplinary field consisting of, to name a few, biostatisticians, health economists, epidemiologists, physicians, nurses, sociologists, <laughs> kind of more, more broad, I'm just going through all the folks that are at Espire. Um, more, <laughs> more, more broadly, health services re- researchers are, are relied upon by the government, by insurers, by providers, and, and consumers themselves to examine access to care delivery methods and healthcare costs and outcomes. And 
and the most exciting part about health services research for me is the ability for it to inform and then evaluate innovations in health policy, such as changes to Medicaid and Medicare coverage, and how we might better mitigate disparities in access to and utilization of, of health care and in particular surgical care. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and that actually leads me right into one of your most recently published articles, uh, which was in the Journal of American Heart Association. And it looked at peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD, um, which is actually something I have a personal interest in because my dad has had the arteries in his legs rotorooters about five or six times. That's what I call it because that's how the original vascular surgeon described it to me. Um, <laughs> could you perhaps describe atherectomy and how it compares to other modes of treatment like angioplasty and stenting? Sure. Yeah, rotorootering is a term that we too will use because it is it relates to a very real world example that people understand. And a lot of people, after we explain sort of what we do, they're like, "Wow, you guys are just like plumbers of the blood vessels," and that's they're not people are not, that's that's not not wrong. Um, so uh, atherectomy is just one of uh, many tools in our endovascular arsenal that we have to treat peripheral arterial disease and endovascular referring to kind of the more minimally invasive approach using wires and catheters mm-hmm. to treat and to open up the blood vessels. And so at a high level, atherectomy is where that calcified plaque is shaved or vaporized away with tiny rotating blades or a so laser small. at the end of a catheter, which is a catheter being kind of a, a thin, flexible tube. This contrasts with angioplasty, uh, where a balloon is inflated to open the blood vessel, uh, or stenting, where a metal mesh tube is inserted in the blood vessel to permanently keep it open. Multiple studies have suggested that atherectomy is superior to just doing balloon angioplasty alone, but the evidence is really equivocal regarding atherectomy's performance compared to stenting, which is actually quite a bit less expensive than atherectomy. And despite the minimal data to support the routine use of atherectomy, the rates of atherectomy continue to increase, again, over the less expensive stenting, which is rather curious. And one of the reasons why ourselves, as well as other research teams around the country, are giving it a closer look. Well, so in the article, you talk about de-incentivizing atherectomy as a first-line treatment for intermittent claudication. Um, And that is when... You are like walking a fair distance and like you feel some pain in your calf area. Is that right? Yes, that's a great clarification question. So given that, I'll start with kind of a summary of the problem okay. uh, and then talk a little bit more about sort of the solutions that we came up with in, in our editorial. So PAD or PAD, as you said, <laughs> peripheral disease, can be broken down into two levels really of increasing severity. The first one is intermittent claudication. Um, And that's where patients experience cramping in their lower extremities with activity. And kind of the more advanced presentation of peripheral arterial disease is something called chronic limb-threatening ischemia, or we abbreviate it as CLTI, um, where peri- Yeah, (laughs) it can be. uh, Where patients experience rest pain in their foot or tissue loss or gangrene. Um, So you can see there's a sort of a spectrum of peripheral arterial disease. Um, And for intermittent claudication, uh, the risk of limb loss is about 1% per year. Uh, But for CLTI, for the chronic limb-threatening ischemia, it's actually about 20% per year. 
So the recommendations as well as the goals of treatment are vastly different for these two disease processes, for intermittent claudication and then for CLTI. For claudication, the initial treatment, kind of first-line treatment, is actually non-surgical. It's Hmm. it's supervised exercise therapy. Uh, It's smoking cessation. And it's Mm -hmm. medical optimization with antiplatelet agents like just baby aspirin as well as statin therapy rather than doing a surgery, either an open bypass or doing Mm -hmm. a peripheral vascular intervention, such as atherectomy. Um, This is in pretty stark contrast with CLTI, where the treatment is much more aggressive. And in addition to recommending smoking cessation and and putting patients on aspirins and statins, which I think we as vascular surgeons would wish we could just put that in the water if possible. (laughs) Um, Dr. Dalton was put metformin in the water. (laughs) (laughs) metformin as well. Um, The (laughs) intervention for patients with CLTI is performed much more expeditiously um, Mm. and more aggressively in order to prevent limb loss. So does that answer your kind of initial question about sort of what intermittent claudication is? And that actually explains a lot to me. That's really helpful. Um, Your two fellow authors on this study are uh, Dr. Todd Wagner, who we interviewed in season one, and uh, Dr. Shipper Aria, who is a professor of vascular surgery. Uh, She works most of the time over at the VA Palo Alto. What was it like working with the two of them? I think this was not your first time. It was not. um, No stranger to either of them. Uh, Dr. Aria has been instrumental really to my success as far as an academic surgeon, and she continues to be a truly incredible mentor while I'm working on a career development award grant as an assistant professor. And I then met Dr. Wagner in his leadership role at the HERC, actually, or the Health Ah, Economic Research Center at the the VA during my VA Mm -hmm. HSRD fellowship. And now I get the opportunity to work with them on faculty at Aspire, which which is awesome because they both seem to be teaming with phenomenal research ideas and they have vast, vast experience with grant writing. But we, um, as we were kind of brainstorming kind of what we wanted to suggest as potential solutions for the, the for disincentivizing atherectomy, we came up with a couple different ideas and kind of it boils down to the Centers for Medicaid and, and Medicare, uh, CMS, in order to combat to combat the increasing costs of PAD treatment, they modified mm-hmm. the physician reimbursement by increasing reimbursement for office-based procedures, which shifted the incentive to treat peripheral arterial disease via these minimally invasive peripheral vascular interventions through endovascular okay. means as an outpatient rather uh-huh. than in a, in a hospital or surgical setting. Okay. So in this, as well as in subsequent fi- CMS final rules for payment, atherectomy, uh, uniquely has higher reimbursement compared to other modalities, despite oh. the lack of evidence that we discussed about before about its effectiveness. Interesting. And it's been really hypothesized amongst health economists t- speaking with vascular surgeons, such as Todd Wagner, Shipper Ari, and myself, <laughs> that, that this incentive design, the higher reimbursement for peripheral vascular intervention in office-based laboratories paired with higher reimbursement for atherectomy, mm-hmm. may in part be responsible for the exponential increase in atherectomy volume, both in absolute numbers and as well as relative to other modalities over the past decade. So it's kind of a two, sort of those, that twofold incentivization for doing these peripheral vascular interventions in the office-based setting, as well mm-hmm. as increased reimbursement for this particular modality that has led to this kind of disproportionate growth in atherectomy that we've seen. If the, if the reimbursement is, if that might be the thing causing the 
overuse of atherectomy, then how do you go about changing that policy? Is that something you can do? So that's what we that's what we try in health, in health services research and focusing on health policy. What's what we try to do? <laughs> so we kind of pose the question. So from a policy standpoint, said another way of what you just said: How do we discourage overuse mm-hmm. by select providers and actually incentivize evidence based care more broadly? Okay. One possibility is is actually partnering with payers such as CMS to monitor providers performing any given procedure several standards of deviation outside the mean in any given year. Mm. So we partner with CMS rather than relying on individual hospitals or state medical boards or professional societies. Mm -hmm. So what if we partner with those providing the reimbursement to identify those particular outliers? And Uh instead of really policing each individual procedure, the goal of these programs would be to monitor the overall procedure volume and, and payments to these providers through auditing and, I, mm-hmm. and then identify these outliers by really evaluating reimbursement CPT provider distributions to ensure that the sort of patient-centered behavior is being incentivized rather than the financially incentivized behavior. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And and the other thing that we thought about is I mentioned before that the first line therapy for intermittent claudication is exercise. Mm -hmm. However, the non-surgical interventions aren't always reimbursed all that well. They're often kind of non-surgical interventions are poorly, such as exercise, are poorly reimbursed in fee-for-service models. And the way it's currently described, prescribing a patient-supervised exercise therapy that meets insurance company standards is fairly impractical and somewhat challenging, particularly in the community setting. And so it's difficult Mm -hmm. for providers to deliver evidence-based care and be reimbursed for it. Got it. And then kind of the last thing, and I know, despite it normally being considered a dirty word, prior authorization, Ah. I'd actually, I know, (laughs) but it actually might be useful in in a unique circumstance such as this. Mm -hmm. So hear me out. Prior authorization was initially intended to facilitate sort of the safe and guideline adherent provision of new and potentially costly therapies. Mm Aside from how it's largely been morphed into and kind of from a practical sense, in this instance, atherectomy for PAD might actually be a good use case for how we might reimagine prior authorization Mm -hmm. uh, under value-based contracts. So from a practical standpoint, requiring prior auth for atherectomy for the indication of intermittent claudication in an office space laboratory setting Mm-hmm. would help to ensure that the patient is on that optimal medical therapy. So they're on the baby aspirin, they're on statins, mm-hmm. they're not smoking, and they've had a trial of exercise therapy before they undergo an intervention. And mm-hmm. potentially this may help to, by providing this barrier, this is actually a good barrier to providing non-patient-centered and non-evidence-based care. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I mean, it was not fun going through, you know, a year of physical therapy and uh, NSAIDs from before I had my ankle reconstructed. Um, yeah. But I'm really happy that I tried all of those things before, you know, I had someone go in and drill two holes in my fibula. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when it, when the outcomes from that could actually, as I said, rather than 
helping you may down the road actually harm you. Right. And, and when the evidence doesn't necessarily suggest the quick fix of, of a surgery, this would sort of be the interesting setting and a unique use case where the system might be applied. And again, completely hypothetical situation, but just some sort of policy changes. We were brainstorming as we were trying to come up with unique ways to disincentivize the rampant use of atherectomy that we're seeing mm-hmm. um, in practice settings across the country. For sure. Well, so we're almost out of time, but I did want to mention real quick that you were a recipient of one of this year's seed grants from the department. Congratulations. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about your project and what we can expect to see at your update? Absolutely. First, I want to say I'm incredibly grateful to the Department of Surgery for their generosity to fund these pilot projects um, in the form of seed grants. Um, which which really help us to generate data to support our applications for bigger grants. So mm-hmm. thank you to the Department of Surgery for the opportunity. <laughs> um, and in this project, I'll be working with my mentor, uh, Dr. Arya, who nice. I, we mentioned earlier, um, and the talented biostatisticians at Aspire, uh, led by Amber Tricky. Uh. Yep, the one and only, to look at endovascular device diffusion. As we've been talking about endovascular technology, mm-hmm. uh, it's become increasingly more prevalent to treat vascular disease as it's minimally invasive and has a desirable safety profile. Yeah. And although these devices have been shown to improve outcomes, the advent of endovascular surgery has unfortunately not equally benefited racial and ethnic minorities as well as women. Okay. So because of this, we are going to use the Vascular Quality Initiative Medicare-linked data set to try to address two key gaps in knowledge. The first being why female patients and and Black patients are subject to slower rates of diffusion Mm -hmm. in endovascular devices to treat disease processes such as abdominal aortic aneurysms, Mm -hmm. carotid stenoses, as well as peripheral arterial disease, and why female patients and Black patients have poorer results when receiving endovascular treatments um, with kind of my lofty goal being to use this data as part of a larger mixed method study to ultimately create strategies to mitigate these disparities in both access as well as outcomes that um, would be for, for racial and ethnic minorities and, and women. So, Very nice. It's great work. Thanks. Anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? In addition to baby boy number three coming, <laughs> coming in June of this year. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank Yay! you. Thank Can't you. <laughs> um, yes, we'll, we'll be very busy in our household with, with three little boys. But another focus of my research is the importance of surgical care setting. So it's not just what kind of treatment people are getting, but where they're getting the treatment. And okay. as part of my work at the VA, I'm looking at how the Mission Act, the Congressional Act that facilitates the ease uh, with which veterans can now receive care in the community rather than right. the VA system, uh-huh. how that act has affected short and long-term surgical outcomes. Ah. Our work comparing surgical outcomes in the VA versus the private sector was previously featured in JAMA Surgery, and I'll be presenting Mm -hmm. uh, at the Association of VA Surgeons annual meeting in April uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. Will I see you there? You will not. I'm sorry. I have not been invited to Madison, Wisconsin. I'll, I'll bring you back some uh, some famous Wisconsin some cheese. cheese. Um, yes. But I'll be presenting about our work focusing on the surgical care of women in the VA compared to the private sector. So that kind of the TLDR from kind of both those projects were that veterans getting care within the VA have better outcomes than all comers in the private sector. All right. So stay tuned on how this research can ultimately, we hope, can ultimately influence policymakers to kind of curtail the diversion of funds away from the VA to ensure that the good outcomes that we have been seeing for veterans receiving care 
within the VA system can continue to be achieved in the future. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. The pleasure was all mine. And that brings us to the end of another episode. If you like Scrubcast, we hope you'll tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hahn.